Hey, good morning. Uh, we uh, continue on in our uh, epistle to the Colossians, and again, we're going to see the high emphasis on Jesus Christ. And uh, we know that that's what the Bible is all about anyway, isn't it? It's uh, the great highlight all the way through the Bible. And uh, in Colossians, we get, uh, I think, a supreme example of Christ as it presents the supremacy, the very preeminence of Christ. And actually, when you look in in Colossians and anywhere, you just when you know Him, you can't miss Him. You know, you can't miss Him anywhere you look here. And uh, I think it's such a blessing to be able to proclaim Christ and His excellencies each week to be able to talk about Him and uh, what seems to be uh, every verse that we exposit. So what a what a blessing. And this is the way it is to be. You know, this uh, we know Christ is our life. He is our life, and we want to know Him, to be continually thinking on Him and praising Him. Uh, and ultimately, uh, and the real reason is that we are to be under His authority. He is Lord. He's supreme, and He's not just a wonderful being, not a, just a great teacher but one who is Lord of all. And in the first two chapters, we've seen the doctrine of Paul being blown out fully and showing that um, how we're to counter heresies, false teaching, false philosophies. We've seen those in those two chapters. And we see that as Jesus is the supreme one, He is all that matters. Any other religion doesn't have one person is that, that all that matters. You know, if you introduce me to a group of people where Christ is all that matters, well, I'll show you the local church because Christ is all that matters in our lives. Now, we've been thinking about the new man in uh, Colossians chapter 3, and we talked about the clothes. There are the things that were to take off. And then there are the clothes that we are to put on, the new man. And it's a real practical area. It's real practical as we uh, develop this and how we are to put this into our lives. It's something that comes alive in us. So with a little bit of doctrine in those first two chapters, now we take this doctrine, we put it into our lives, and we live it. Scripture shows us that we have been transformed we are renewed. We are regenerated. We are new people. We're a new creation. And uh, isn't that great to know? We are new because of what Christ has done. Uh, we're doing church history for a few weeks on our Wednesday nights. We talked about a little bit uh, about Chrysostom, the early church father, a great, great preacher from the 4th century. And he illustrated this truth, I think, in a real colorful way. I'll just read you a little bit. This is coming from our old life to our new life when we were born again. Like unto a spiteful fox, that swindler entered the church who built his house on the ruin of his competitors. And behold, he goes out more harmless than a lamb, willing to sacrifice his own interest for the sake of others. Like a crow, that sinner entered the church. Now behold, he goes out cooing like a dove. That impatient, quarrelsome man who made everyone smart, who touched him like a porcupine, came in bristling, and behold, he goes away like a loving spaniel, gentle to touch. Now that's something about transformation. 
we're talking about the fox or the crow or the uh, uh, you think of the porcupine and the way that they came in or seeing who Christ was and then as they were being tra- as they were transformed they were now gentle to touch as far as the porcupine is concerned transformation i guess and you can think of this autumn and the, the leaves falling you think of dead leaves the, the old life which uh, you know hangs on some of the trees have the leaves that hang on through the winter storms and they're pushed off by the rising tide of springtime and to us that's like eternal life just explodes and uh, we have now been changed now in this passage today in Colossians 3:15 through 17 just three verses we we have this thought of putting on new clothes right? that's what he's talked about earlier in this chapter and this time it's going to be like putting a robe over the new clothes you remember last week we finished with the belt Love, in verse 14, that's what holds the clothes all together. And now we're going to put on the robes. This is the the general view of it all. Three important elements here that are very valuable to the Christian's life. They're priorities. They're necessities to live this life while we're here on earth. Um, To live a holy life. How do we live this holy life as Christians, right? In this perverse generation. Well, as we see in Colossians, it's very practical. This is how you do it. And uh, these just put it all together as we, we put them on. The new man's priorities are the peace of Christ, the Word of Christ, and then as he closes in verse 17, the name of Christ. Christ is all in all, isn't He? That's what it's about. So again, three verses... Three little uh, terms here. Christ's peace, Christ's word, and Christ's name. When we stand for a few moments, let's read this text. Colossians 3, verse 15. This is how we can live the Christian's life. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. For that is the reason why we gather. To hear some words from You. These are Your words. They're not my words or any scholar's words, but the very words of Christ. And help them come alive this morning to us so that we can understand more thoroughly who you are and how we're to live this life that will reflect the very person of Christ as we encounter a perverse world and that we could show your glory as you work in us for your glory. By your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, yes. Yes. The peace of Christ. The peace of Christ. You know what? The world doesn't know peace. It really has never exhibited peace. Washington, D.C. has a large assortment of peace monuments. You can just see them all over Washington, D.C. And you know what? We build one after every war. 
We have wars. We have peace. Not really. Wars are constant, aren't they? You know, I think everybody wants peace. Nations want peace. Most people want peace. But most don't have peace because they don't have the key to open the door. And we see here this morning, in this very 15th verse, it says, we as Christians do have the peace of Christ. H.G. Wells said this. supposed to be an intelligent man, intelligent writer. Here's what he said about peace and his own personal peace. He wasn't a Christian. Here's what he said. The time has come for me to reorganize my life, my peace. I cry out. I cannot adjust my life to secure any peace. Here I am at 64, still seeking peace. It's a hopeless dream. That's sad, isn't it? And if every person would be serious, if they don't have Christ, they don't have peace. They're looking for it. They may think they have peace, but they really don't. They're looking for something else to fill up the vacuum, right? And the peace of Christ is what every one of us have here if we've trusted in Christ. Now the word here, let the peace of Christ, the word means a, a pact, a treaty. It's a, some kind of an agreement that people come to when they've had a war, for instance. And it also takes on the idea of a security that we have, having peace, a, a, a rest, and so you take all those terms and it's, it's like when you were brought to Christ, you entered into a covenant. A covenant that He offered you. Uh, and so as a treaty. And at the same time, you entered security, didn't you? You weren't secure before because you were at war with Him. We were all at war. So after putting on the clothing of the new man, as Paul has mentioned already, and the belt of love... We put on these robes. This peace is a robe that we're putting on. Now, it mainly probably involves the subjective experience that we have when we're at peace, we're at security, we're at rest with God. We're at rest in our hearts. Our souls are at peace, right? But it also takes on other meanings. Um, I think that's probably the main thought here in this context. But it has to start with salvation because you can't have peace until you have peace that God has supplied for us. This is where peace first comes from. This is the key. It's salvation. And we look in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. And there peace is used in this salvific way as He mentions... This in the first verse of chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have an objective truth there. Whether you have it or not, whether you feel like it or not, if you're a Christian, you do have it. We have peace with God because He justified us. Because of faith. Forgiveness. So if we start with the salvation experience, we can certainly say that it is wonderful to not be at war with God anymore. We're not at war with Him. We are at total peace. 
Jesus wrote a peace treaty. He put your name on it. You're in that covenant. We're on His side, folks. We win. We win. And we know we do because of what He's done. This is an objective truth here, the salvation thing. is It's already happened. So every time that we would consider things that maybe bring on anxiety, you might start considering, first of all, the peace that was brought to you because of Christ and the covenant that He had. Anytime you have anxious moments, start thinking about that just to start with. And you'll start finding your rest and security there. Then it also means the very personal peace of Christ. And I think this is probably what it means more than anything. Let the peace of Christ belongs to Him. And then He says, rule in your hearts. It belongs to Him. It's, it's Christ's peace, but He's given it to us. That's a supernatural peace. You'll remember in John 14.27, easy verse to uh, recall. Right now you're probably saying, what is that? That's just the night before He's going to be crucified. And He gives them some last minute instructions. This is the Apostles. And he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled or let it be fearful. Why? Because He's given us peace. It's this inner peace. I think that's the main meaning here. It's a subjective element here. The objective truth is that this is what has already happened to us. Now let's let this peace rule in our hearts. It's an inner peace because of Christ. It's an ongoing, everyday kind of peace that we want to have. It's that calm of mind. Have you had a calmness about you because of who you are in Christ? It's that calm of mind that is not ruffled by adversity or unclouded by a remorseful conscience or disturbed by fear. That's the kind of peace we're talking about. It's a well-being, a wholeness that we have. Let that rule. Rest and security. Eternal peace. Look in Philippians, just the book before this. You remember this? Not too long back when we were in the book of Philippians, we covered this. Good to be reminded. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. The peace of Christ. It goes beyond any kind of understanding we can have. And it just sometimes when you go through through some of the hardest things, you go, I don't know how I got through that only but through Christ. I can't understand how that can happen. And then you'll have people come up to you and say, I can't believe how you just took this so calmly. It's not natural for us to take things calmly when they're upsetting, but it'll guard our hearts and our minds. Boy, that's an inner peace, isn't it? Isn't that good? Eternal peace. So Now, he's going to tell us what that rule, but we'll continue on. It also means not only that having that subjective peace, it continues with another kind of subjective peace, uh, but it's objective too, and it's, you'll find it in the Old and the New Testaments, but two kind of terms that go together, it's the peace of Christ and the presence of Christ. Because He's here with us right now. He is the peace. He lives in us, but He's also he's with us 
somehow, however that is. You look all the way back to Numbers. And in chapter 6, verse 24, 24 through 26, Moses is supposed to speak to Aaron and his sons. They're going to have a blessing to the sons of Israel. He says, here's what I want you to tell them. The Lord bless you and keep you. Sound familiar? The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Now you'll see, make His face shine on you. The Lord make His face shine on us. That means the very presence of God is with us. He's amongst us. He's in the midst of us right now. So His presence and peace is together. And He says, The Lord lift up His countenance, His his face on you, and give you peace. So, the peace of Christ, the presence of Christ, they do go together. And another one that we can say here in Colossians, and it is definitely pointing to this next phrase, rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, We haven't covered the rest of those other words there, but we'll get back to that. But he's pointing to peace in the body. Peace in the church. So that goes along with the peace that we have inwardly. We're also to have the peace that is with other people. Especially as we're in Colossians today, it's speaking of what we're to do when we worship because he's going to be talking about psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and teaching and that kind of thing. And that's what they do. They interact together and they have a peace together. So if you have a peace in your own heart, you know what that will do for others? It will give them a peace. Or if they have a peace, they can give you a peace. So when we have peace in our hearts, what does it do with others? It affects it mightily. The body can be in great harmony. So, 15 through 17 is dealing with relationships in the church, and it only makes sense. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So, we've seen it objectively, subjectively, with others, and he says, rule. Now, I like that word. And it's very timely because in the baseball world, you have the playoffs that have just started, and the Cardinals happen to be now in the playoffs advancing even further. Now, that brings peace to my heart. Joy! <laughs> nah, that's, that's okay. That's fun. You know, that's, that's some neat things you can have in this world. If you enjoy sports, if you don't, that's fine too. If you've got other things you enjoy. But the reason I say that, how does this relate to baseball? Well, the word, word rule actually is defined as umpire. Aha! Let the peace of Christ umpire in your hearts. What? Umpire? Call balls and strikes? Call infield fly rules? <laughs> well, I'm really current now, aren't I? <laughs> Protests. In many Greek sources, the Greek word would be referred to the function of one who took it on himself to decide what is right in an athletic contest. 
One who decides what's right. Now let the peace of Christ be your umpire in your heart amidst all the conflict and all the temptations and everything that's thrown at us. And he says, let Christ and that peace be the umpire or call the balls and strikes. Are you catching that? I like that word rule there. That's pretty good. Let Christ decide what is right in your daily conflicts. You can't call the balls and the strikes. You're not the umpire, but He is. Let Him call the shots, right? He's the counselor. The peace of Christ is what guides the believers in making decisions. You can say, well, I can't get the answer on this. I've been looking for this for months. (laughs) What job am I supposed to be working? (laughs) I can relate to that. For months, let the peace of Christ rule in my heart. That's right. He calls the shots. And all the shots that I've tried to call just are, um, they don't count. (laughs) It hasn't worked yet. So here I am. He will finally make that decision. We know sin offends Christ, doesn't it? He's living in us. Sin happens. We're not at peace. Now we are at peace in one sense, but in another sense, there's not a peaceful thing we're carrying around here because we're carrying some guilt. We know we have to deal with it. We don't want to let sin shatter the rest and security that we have, even in our emotions, in our heart and such. So if we would say, oh, I, am, I know that this is not the right thing to do. This doesn't honor Christ. He's the umpire. Here's what He's calling. I'm going to go that way. And you will have peace. How much misery could we avoid if we just permitted the peace of Christ to umpire in our hearts, how much could that happen? How many words we would hold back if we would realize that He's the arbitrator in our lives? How much better it would be, wouldn't it? Where there are differences between Christians, let the peace of Christ rule, right? So this is how we are to choose and make decisions being Christians as we go through our everyday lives. Let Christ rule. Then the next one, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, umpire in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Okay, Called in one body. There's that word, ekleste, ekleste, we were called. And you'll remember that last week we talked about that word dealing with the elect, right? Those who have been chosen of God in verse 12. And he reminds them again that they are called or elected. And that's really the idea. Called out ones. The word Ecclesia, as we talk about the body here, the ecclesia is the body. Ecclesia is our English word is church. Ecclesia in the Greek means church. It means called out ones. We are the ones that were called out of the sinful world into the body of Christ. The called out ones. We were chosen to be set apart from eternity past. We talked about that last week. From eternity past, that's where it started. 
all the way into eternity future, which is forever. This was God's plan that we would be in this body for eternity. And since we're members in one body, the church is a collective unit. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called. You were called to be put into this body of Christ. The whole body, the whole church worldwide. And that's a, there's a relational peace that's going on. Individuals with peace will live in unity with others. So we have an eternal, eternal significance in the very purpose of God. One of those is how the church works together. You know, it's a dynamic community, and I'm not saying that just to make that sound really fancy. Dynamic or dynamite is what it is about because it's all based on Christ. There is no community like the body of Christ. And you put little local bodies together. Small, big, whatever, you know, mid-sized. It's amazing how dynamic they are and the different gifts and how different ones do different things and it all just comes together. You know, that's amazing. So we're called in one body and be thankful. Now this is interesting. I really haven't... I know on... um, the Fridays, some of uh, the ladies have been doing the book study. And it seems like that whatever you guys are dealing with is what I'm dealing with. So it's very timely, isn't it, <laughs> There it is. There's that word thankful. And I think they covered that last week. I, sometimes I'll ask Carolyn, well, you guys have been talking about it. You know, it's really exciting to talk about. You know, it's, it's really cool. It's interesting. Usually, sometimes we're, I don't really know. But um, just talking about that, and I said, well, there we go again. We have something just to follow right up with a key word here. And the word is Eucharisto. Now that may sound familiar to many of you. You've heard the word Eucharist. Uh, There are a lot of denominations that use that for communion or Lord's Supper. Uh, Eucharist. uh, Really, it's dealing with a a time for giving thanks. Saying uh, this good word of thanks. When there's peace in the heart, there's going to be praise on the lips. So you have it here, it's going to come out here. And of course he's getting into that as we'll be ready to go right into verse 16. You notice how these all just kind of fit together and flow. Uh, But praise on the lips. If your life is obedient, you've been confessing sin, you've been into the Word of God, you're filled with God's Spirit, thankfulness is always going to be there. You're always saying thanks. Saying thanks always. What's the will of God? Saying thanks always. No matter the circumstance, no matter the situation, what are we to say? Thanks. Thanks, 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 right? You know, it's a constant theme in Colossians. It's not just by accident that he would just plug that in there. Oh, yeah, we need to say thanks. But look, he's just been saying it all over the place. In Colossians 1.3, look at this. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, praying always for you. We give thanks. Every time he prayed, I'm sure he's giving thanks. Verse 12 says it again. Giving thanks to the Father, this is a pretty good reason, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. Wow. Yeah. 
That's a good reason to say, thank you, Lord. I get to get in on the inheritance. Chapter 2, verse 7. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Thanks. Rooted. Built up. Established. Those are building terms, aren't they? You were instructed. That's, that's how you get built up. You get instructed. And, of course, the Word of God. And, of course, we get that in the next verse. You, you overflow with gratitude. It's, it's just here you can't keep it from coming out. It's just overflowing the bucket. You're filled up. Chapter 3, uh, verse 15, 16, and 17 all have thanks. We see it here in our verse in 16. It will say it. And in verse 17 it will say it. And we'll come across that. Turn over to chapter 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. I say that is a huge theme in Colossians. And that's what we do. We can look at other verses. Ephesians 5.20, Philippians 4.6, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. It's the will of God to say thanks. Hebrews 13.15. That's the mark of a Christian. That's one of the best ways that one can show they are a Christian just by saying thanks to the Lord. An unbeliever is one who doesn't give thanks. And you'll see that in Romans chapter 1 where it starts a a section dealing with the wrath of God. The unbeliever does not give thanks to God. So peace and thankfulness are closely linked, aren't they? Peace and thankfulness. If you're thanking God and you're thanking Him for whatever situation you're in, good, bad, and different, whatever, you're thanking the Lord that He's controlling this. We don't go around saying, hey, thank you, Lord, for causing me to get sick today. You know, we, we don't say that. But at the same time, we can say, thank you, Lord, for giving me the breath that I have here today, a, a home to live. And you start thinking of things. You can't, you, know, you can't run out of things to say. Might be some other situations we don't really like. But thank you, Lord. John Piper wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Cancer. What? (laughs) Don't waste your cancer? And what he's saying is that you can turn that worst of things, the worst of things that can happen, and turn it into a blessing. Because God can use that for His glory in whatever way He wants to. And you go, wow. Thank you, Lord. He thinks a lot differently than we think, doesn't He? Next one. Verse 15. Now we've talked about the peace of Christ. Now the next phrase is, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Oh, this has got to be one of our favorite verses. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within us. What's He talking about here? Well, he's talking about the Word of God, isn't he? This is Scripture. And if you look back in Colossians 1.5, he says, because of the hope 
laid up for you in heaven. Remember that hope? That's where we're headed. Of which you previously heard in the word of truth. How do you know about that hope? Was it because just somebody just told you and you just believed it? Or was it because you saw it in the word of truth? You heard the word of truth. You're convinced of that hope in heaven because you heard that this is truth and it has it is waiting for us. Look in first Peter chapter one twenty two. The word of God is so key to our living. Peter says this in verse twenty two Since you have in obedience to the truth, they obeyed the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. How were you born again? Through the Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the Word which was preached to you. Now he says, okay, it was preached to you. You became born again. And what happens with that? Well, therefore, putting aside... Now, Peter is saying the same thing Paul said. Take off those old clothes. Put aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Here we go. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, you will grow by the Word of God. You will grow. You will grow. So that is what Colossians saying. Let it richly dwell within you. Parallel passage is found in a parallel letter. Ephesians, Colossians, very similar, especially in this text we're in right now. So let's turn to Ephesians 5 and you will see why. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Now watch. Here we go. But be filled with the Spirit... Now, in our Colossians passage, what did it say? Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, or be filled in you. And Colossians says, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. Our Ephesians says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. Colossians says, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Does that sound familiar? Very, very, very similar. And there's a reason for it. Hey, it's identical to call. It's identical here in Colossians. The Word of Christ is identical with the Holy Spirit. If you're filled with the Spirit, it means you are filled with the Word of God. If you're filled with the Word of God, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. So, you cannot have one without the other. When you fill yourself with the Word of God, you 
should be filled with the Spirit. The Word in the heart and mind is the handle by which the Spirit turns the will. Because if you have the Word of God and the Spirit of God controlling you, it makes the will do what God wants. And that's really what our prayer is always about. Your will be done, right? On earth as it is in heaven. The passage here about the the singing and and the teaching and and such is um, really good because it's talking about here are the things that work in the church. You, You have peace in the church and you have the Word of Christ you know, being at the heart of all this. So... But we have to have the Spirit here. If you have um, all Word and no Spirit, you will dry up. If you have all Spirit and no Word, you will blow up. And if you have the Word and the Spirit, you will grow up. That's how we grow. Spiritually filled. Truth filled. Jesus said that we are to worship in spirit and in truth. Now that word dwell, let the word of Christ richly dwell. A root word is oikeo. And that means to be at home. To make oneself at home. To live there. That's the idea. Let the word of Christ be at home in your heart. Just plop down and be comfortable in your heart. The Word of Christ. So, how do you do that? Well, you read God's Word. You hear God's Word. You meditate upon God's Word. You memorize those Scriptures. And then you say, okay, how can I make these Scriptures come alive in my own life. How can I make that happen? What can I do here? Does the Word of Christ dwell in me richly? That's the thought. Do I let the Word of Christ dwell there? Make itself at home. Richness comes whenever we're yielded to the Holy Spirit and just do what the Scriptures say. Not just know, but do them, right? There are results when the Word of Christ is richly dwelling within us. With all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, there are two words there. One is positive, one is negative. Teaching is the positive part. It's imparting spiritual truth. The Word of truth. And also, he says admonishing, which is kind of a negative tone, but it's, it's a good sense. It warns people of the consequences of behavior if they are not letting Christ's peace and word rule in their hearts and not becoming obedient to it. Uh, But if, if we are, then it overflows us. It just fills us, dwelling in us. With all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing. Got to like this part. This is what church does. Church preaches the Word. They pray. They sing. 
Why do they do so much singing? Do you know the world really doesn't have much to sing about? Oh, they have a lot of songs. A lot of songs just being recorded all constantly. There's some that actually sound good and the message they have in it is pretty good. But if it's not really coming from Christ, they do about as good as they can. But they're missing one major point. And you know what that is? Same way with movies out there. They have a good theme and such. But if it's not giving glory to God, you can. You know, you realize, okay, listen, you use that person and their talents and their abilities to arrive where they're at, but they don't know what that really is ultimately about. Why they do those things. And where that gift even came from that they do. And so, when you look at this, it gets into the emotional aspect. When you have the objective truth coming here subjectively, now it starts working and you can't help but letting it, let it come out of yourselves. And the best way to portray what's on the inside is to be able to sing. Music is a key thing that God has given us as an outlet. And you know, I think everybody here, if I ask the question, do you like to be happy? I got a feeling everyone, 100%, would say, yeah, I sure do. <laughs> we really like that, don't we? And that's what we should be. And that's what it's talking about here. Christians really ought to be the happiest people in the world. Because they know where they came from. They know what life is about right now. And they know where they're going. And they know that there's something even better. But he's in control of all of this, and this is really good ultimately. We know that this is the kingdom of God that we're in, and we just are the only ones who can really sing truth and really, really enjoy it and know where it comes from. Tertullian, early church father, he described the Christian love feast. That's what they called it whenever they'd have a Lord's Supper and people come together and sing and such. And he said this. Now this is like in the second century. He says, here's the Christian love feast, which after water for the hands and lights have been brought in, each is invited to sing to God in the presence of others from his own heart. Imagine the early church as one got up and sang a psalm and another answered antiphonally. Hymns broke forth in a hearty chorus. Others sang spontaneously about what God had done. Music was in their hearts. And you know what? We look back at it, and that's what the church has done for 2,000 years. They have sang songs all throughout church history to God. Singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, thankfulness, your hearts to God. And however they did it, you might have somebody just standing up and singing. And then another one over here gets up and sings and another one starts maybe singing not only the melody, but maybe a a counterpart and then maybe have some um, other parts going along with it. Now you have a little chorus that pops up and and they're singing that. And... um, that's, a, that's an amazing thing how God does that. And there's all sorts of joy expressed in that song. Down through the church years when there have been revivals, and of course one of the biggest ones was Reformation. 
Reformation brought a rebirth of music. It had gotten so negative and the minor tones are constantly there and weighing heavenly. There was no joy in the singing. And the Reformation comes along and it's like the light comes out of the darkness. And Martin Luther writes songs. Other people, some of the other reformers, writing songs according to God's Word. When they were filled with God's Word, they couldn't help but spilling forth in song. And uh, of course we can think of uh, Wesley, who wrote so many of those great hymns uh, of the faith that uh, were really about a sovereign God. And uh, we see a lot of theology in there that's just incredible. Of course, you can think of the Christmas songs. Joy to the world. and Think of all the theology that's there. So, you know, we can teach and encourage each other, not only through the teaching and preaching of the Word, but teaching and encouraging through songs. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and spirituals. This is why we teach and sing in church. Teaching, learning. Psalms, they were taken out of the Psalter, uh, the, the book of Psalms. So they sang literal psalms to music. They put it to music. What a gift God has given us, this music thing. What, what would it be like if we didn't have music? Now, in, in the middle portion today, before we started uh, the preaching of the Word here, we had silence. And sometimes it's really good to have that. And it's good to have it today. But you know what? It seems like there's something missing if we don't have some kind of music going there, not just to cover silence, but to something that you can hear, that you can identify with, or you hear the words and, oh yeah, it kind of gives us a reminder. That's teaching. And uh, so, they would sing those psalms to music. And, you know, there it is in the early church. There they're doing that. Then they'd sing hymns and say, well, we have hymn books, but they didn't have those hymn books. What did they do? What about the hymns? Well, they might have written some of those. Some of them might have just come out of the New Testament. Uh, hymns are expression of praise to God. Some portions of the New Testament were originally sung in the church. Go to Colossians 1. The same book we're dealing with. Verse 15. Look at this. This was probably a song that they sang. That's the Word of God. It's written by Apostle Paul. But they can take that and then turn it into song. So, here it is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now that was probably uh, an early hymn that the church sang. Philippians chapter 2. Might have been another hymn. Probably was. Philippians 2, verse 6. 
who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a section there. Some of your Bibles might even have it set apart, maybe um, capitalized, bracketed, whatever. And then you might have a note on there saying this could have been an early hymn. Anyway, that that's amazing to kind of look in on there. You can only imagine. wonder how the, the hymn did musically. wonder how it did as far as the notes are concerned, right? And of course, they just sang... Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. They're saying everything here. By the way, Psalms uh, might put forth, uh, this is in defense of guitar players. It means to strike a string. Stringed instruments. To pluck a stringed instrument. Aha, Psalms. So I love to always get that one out. You know, David wrote Psalms, and of course he had his instrument and a harp and such, you know, stringed instruments. And uh, my, you see that all throughout the Old Testament. They did that constantly. And I'm saying, you know, it brings in a fullness to have instruments. I'm thankful that we have instruments here. You guys thankful for instruments? Isn't that great? God has equipped people to do that. Gives us voices. And I can only imagine what it's going to be like in heaven. You know, I mean, with... Everything just, I mean, amazing. You take in multiple voices and multiple instruments and maybe instruments we never even heard of. <laughs> What's it going to be like? Wow. Incredible. Incredible. Well, we get to practice here. We get to practice and, and uh, God likes it. God likes to be sung to. I think a revelation also. Listening to James Montgomery Boyce this morning. And he was talking in uh, about singing, and he was in Revelation. I think of Revelation four, for instance, in um, verse eight, right at the end of it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. How many songs have been written taking that out of there? And then verse eleven: Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Now, a lot of our songs have those over and over. They'll be talking about the Creator. They'll be talking about the glory, the honor, the power. Uh, you know, it might be done differently in, in instruments or in the way the melody goes, but it's saying some of the same things. And then uh, in chapter 5, verse 9, they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Worthy is the Lamb. You keep on going there in chapter 5. You see it all throughout Revelation. My, a new song. New creatures with new songs to sing. Spiritual songs emphasized testimony. Just, you know, what God has done for us, for each one of us. 
Hymns were praising God. What He's done. You can think of the cross. All those things. Whatever songs they are, do it with thanksgiving. Do it to God. That's really where all this is going. There is no glory on on anybody. It's all Christ that He be glorified as we sing to Him. We sing to Him. That's what it's all about. Singing to Him for His glory. Singing to the Lord. Demonstration of His grace, isn't it? The last one here then, after we have looked at the peace of Christ and the Word of Christ, now it's the name of Christ. Whatever you do, word or deed, whatever. It just wraps it all up with this now. I don't care what, you know, whatever you're doing, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. The idea, is, the name of Christ is, when we say it in our prayers, in the name of Christ, in your Son's name, right? That is with whatever is consistent with who He is. When we say a prayer, when He says, ask, and I'll give it to you, we're to do it in for the will by the will of the Father, for His will. We do it by His power. And it's for His glory. And we see here that as it's in the name of Christ, we're saying, I'm asking this in that it would be consistent with who He is. That's kind of the idea of the name of Christ. What's happening is he just he just kind of kept narrowing, narrowing down, or or think about this as you go up to a mountain and we, we've we've hit the peak. It got narrow, and now he just comes to this part. You want it simplified? Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything that means consistent with who he is. It it also means authority. We have the authority of Christ who lives in us. Whatever we do, do it with the authority of Christ. We pray in the authority in the name of Christ. Uh, we use the word law with name. Stop in the name of the law. Right? The name of the law. That's what it represents. The name of the law. Um, we want to say, we want to do everything that's under the authority of Christ. And that's that's the idea. Whatever you do, you know, I can think of this: all, everything, is for the glory of God. Everything is to be done in Jesus' name for His glory. First Corinthians ten thirty one. Whether then you eat or drink. Wash dishes. <laughs> Clean out the commode. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything. Because He's equipped us to be able to do that. We have the strength to still be able to do that. I'm losing some strength in my arm. But whatever you can do, whatever that is, you still are given life by God. And we do it in His name 
for Him. We give thanks through Him to God the Father. Boy, what motivations we have for godly living, don't we? Just in looking at these three, these are easy to see. Peace of Christ, the Word of Christ, the name of Christ. I'm impressed with this book of Colossians. The centrality of Christ. Always hitting on Christ. You can't miss it, can we? I've always heard people say, certain people say, if you don't hear Christ in the message, then that message is no good. If they don't preach Christ, then why even bother, right? Well, this is real easy here. You might get on some text that uh, may not necessarily be dealing with his name at the time, but he's still behind it all. Matter of fact, it's his very word. So I'm not going to get too technical and say, I have to say the name of Christ. If I don't say it, then I'm in trouble. Did I say his name today? Well, in Colossians, I don't have to worry about it, do I? Always there. It's the word of Christ that dwells in us. It's the peace of Christ that rules our hearts. It's the name of Christ that's our authority. So we have all the resources right here to live a holy life. And that's what Paul was getting at here in Colossians. And that destroys all the teaching that came out from the false teachers and philosophies. And he's saying this comes alive and we actually live it. We have a holy life. Now we can honor God. What other motivations do we need? What else is there? Our buckets are full. And full buckets cannot help but overflow. So let's just overflow with all of these things as we go out into a world that needs Christ's peace and word and name. Let's pray.